Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's excellent managing editors. Danny, how is New York? New York is cold. It hailed. And it's not just hailing term sheets. There you go. There you go. Actually, I love how whenever anything happens in New York, my Twitter feed just becomes a New York weather report. And by love, <laughs> I mean hate. Uh, we also have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, Hello. Hello, it is similarly cold, but that's not even interesting. What's interesting about my morning is that I was finally blocked by Mark Andreessen on Twitter. I think it's a huge milestone, and thank you guys for getting me here. Yeah, no, no. Here, you know, as a team, we got there together. Uh, I'm also blocked by Mark Andreessen. Danny, however, is not. Danny, what's your current Mark Andreessen Twitter uh, I am currently followed, and I have been followed for, for many years. I, I believe I was among the first followers. Great. Now right. he, has 20, he now follows 20,000 people, and I think it was in the first 1,000 or two. So, so like, that's right. my OG status. But if you're a lover and a follower of equity, we need some love right now because we, we have a situation here. It's actually very critical. The Webbies are out in the podcast technology subsection, which is an ultra-competitive section. Um, we are currently ranked five out of five. We are, we are, we are the, the, the postscript of the ballot box right now, and we need your help. So go to Webby. I don't know where it is. I assume we'll put it in the URL at some point. Just check well, any they, of our Twitters. Just check any of our Twitters. Twitters. We don't care about this, but we care enough to put 30 seconds into the front of the show about it <laughs> uh, before we talk about Discord and a bunch of other stuff today. Alex, what do we have on the docket today? I just want to, before we do the rundown, I, I've, I, this is the only chance I'm ever going to have to win a journalism award. Me too. You know, and I, I don't want to die merely an award losing journalist. You know what I mean? So so vote for us if you can or block us on Twitter if you're Mark Andreessen. All right. Uh, on today's show, we have... The dissolution of the Discord Microsoft deal, the MasterCard Urkata acquisition, which is a huge amount of money. ClearBank is now ClearCo. Tosh is going to walk us through why that's the case. We have UiPath. We have the UiPath of China. And then we have funding rounds from Deal, 2Es, No A, Albedo, and Queenly. Uh, the latter two were both Y Combinator grads. It's going to be a packed show. But let's kick off with the deal that didn't happen, which is Discord, Natasha. Why did Microsoft not get to piss away 10 or $12 billion on Discord? I think Discord knows that it's hot stuff. Discord basically ended its sale talks with Microsoft. The acquisition had valued Discord at $10 billion. Some publications have valued it at $12 billion. What we do know now is that it's reportedly focused on going the IPO route. So I think yeah. it's doing that kind of that dance the way like peacocks do the dance. See, Sawstone was interested and is now like retreating back and just knows that it can go and do its own thing. I'm declaring bull on this entire story. Okay. You know, rumors leaked to major publications saying Microsoft's interested in poking around and then rumors leaked that says no longer poking around. Like what a non-story. If I was an investment banker 
hire to, to like drum up support for an IPO, this is what I would be doing. I would burn my PR credibility with every journalist and be like, oh my God, this company's so hot right now. Like Microsoft is going to invest at the exact same time that Microsoft announced a major acquisition last week with Nuance Communications in the voice recognition space. What was that? About $16 billion. So clearly this was never on the offering. There's no way that Microsoft at the same time was going to buy multiple companies in the 16 to $20 billion range. So you keep saying that number as if it's a big number, but you forget that Microsoft is worth like, what is it? $1,730 billion, $1.73 trillion. What's 15 billion? What's 10? They don't care. I think they care. Like they're rich on a scale. I, they're, they're rich on a I, scale. I get what you're you know, saying. They, yeah, it's, it's an extra lot higher. Microsoft doesn't own that stock. It has to use its cash. It's actually, to me, you can only do so many of these major acquisitions. I mean, from the corp dev perspective of integrating one of these companies into your organization, you can only do so many large acquisitions at once. Beyond Microsoft, you know, according to the Wall Street Journal, there were three other companies exploring acquiring Discord. Danny, one of my favorite stories you wrote was this idea that bankers are just drumming up these prices. I think you were saying it with TikTok back then in the day. Oh, yeah. Remember the TikTok? Remember, oh, remember yeah. the TikTok? Oh, God. Oh, my God. This is like, you know. Rumors aside, Discord has proof internally that it is a growing solid company. Last year, let's not forget, it doubled its valuation Within six months, it hit 140 million monthly active users. It raised a ton of funding. And so Discord going public could have always been on the cards. I don't think it needed the drama to get energy. Like it's one of those loved companies that's iconic. So yeah, why does it need extra affection? I mean, like just the numbers alone speak to it. It, it hit, I think, 130 million in revenue last year off of its Nitro premium subscriptions. And let me tell you, they're hard to find because I use Discord all the time and I've never given them a cent and I definitely should by now. And I don't even <laughs> know how frankly, to give them money. And that to me just says that there is tons of revenue on the table for this firm because people really do end up spending a good chunk of their life on it if you're a gamer like I am. So to me, like if it's 130 now, it could be 300 pretty quickly, you know, because they, they should be taking some of my money every month and they're, they're just not. So Danny thinks it's crap. I think it's a little more real than that. I think the frankly. story is crap. I don't oh, think okay. Discord is crap. I think this this no, no. whole little kerfuffle over the last two weeks. Something's a lot of up. discordant <laughs> voices, if you will. I would probably agree with you if... So many people, ah, it, just, it feels too overly reported and confirmed, Danny, to be a complete smokescreen to me. Ah, am, I, am I being not cynical enough? Am I getting old? I think you're not being cynical enough. Oh, man, I, I, and the terrifying. reason I say that is like, you know, after just watching Visa Plaid, which, look, well, it's not the same space, but like Plaid got bought in, you know, for 5.2 and then raised what? I don't know, like 10, 12? I don't remember. 13, somewhere in there. 13 yeah. billion, yeah. you know, so like, two, you know, a couple of months later goes up by two and a half X. I don't think anyone wants to sell at this price. Like Nuance is a great example of a good acquisition. Older company, very well established, has a very clear market, very mature. $16 billion is a very nice exit for a company that's done a lot of great work, particularly in the medical health space. Discord, I mean, why would you take a, a hot property like this? When you're at Slack's case, where you're like mature, boring, and it's starting to become clearly a Skype 2.0 situation, like that's when you sell to Salesforce. Right. And, and the point here is Discord was worth $7 billion. And if that was the case, you know, last December or whatever it was, why would it suddenly be worth only 10 if you were to take it off the table or 12? It just feels a little bit low. All right, but let's move on to another deal. Danny, MasterCard has bought Akata, E-K-A-T-A, which is kind of like in the identity space. Now, to me, I think identity, I think Okta, not Akata, both great company names. Why does this deal matter? Well, it, it does matter. It, do, it doesn't matter in the sense that it's, is it super interesting? No. It does matter in the sense that it was an 850 million acquisition by MasterCard, one of the top six or seven largest acquisitions in the company's history. Ikata was formerly White Pages Pro. If you remember the Yellow Pages, that was more like an advertorial deliver to your home 
in the form of a yellow paged book. White Pages was always the business directory listing sort of service. I'm not even sure if they're related to each other. White Pages eventually split up into two businesses, whitepages.com, focused on consumers, and then a B2B product that was focused on identity verification. Identity verification is super important. Yes. Knowing that a retailer exists, knowing that it's real, knowing that a consumer is real, it's used for anti-fraud, used for know your customer, anti-money laundering rules and fintech. So it's obvious that MasterCard needed to have an identity verification product. They chose Akata. I have no idea why they chose that particular one over the literally dozens of else in the field, but maybe it was the right price at the right time and it happens. I, I think one reason why they picked them up is that they had 2,000 customers, including Lyft, Stripe, Equifax, and Checkout.com. I mean, like, I mean, they, they didn't buy a little scrappy startup with like three customers in a dream. They bought a, a material business, which is why it cost $0.85 billion. Something I love about the story is that MasterCard has kind of quietly become a mass consolidator for fintech companies. Obviously, Visa losing Plaid, but Visa's had 13 successful acquisitions to date, and MasterCard has had 22 known acquisitions to date. Maybe this is just me being around startup people too much, but I'm like, well, MasterCard is doing a really good job of being subtle about it. And it's probably really fun to work all of a sudden. It's acquiring so many companies and is kind of adding on these competitive advantages in, I think, a more subtle way than Visa. One more thing that I want to bring up on this before we move along, which is that my dear friend Holton Page over at Finledger pulled some data on the identity verification and fraud detection startup space. And according to his research, these startups have pulled in about 835 million across 24 rounds this year. So it's a lot of money going into this space, Danny. So your point about there being myriad companies, it really, well, really I makes mean, sense. Think, think about this. This is a really established mature company with 2,000 customers, $850 million exit. $835 million in venture funding wow. in just what, in, in the last year, in this year alone, 835 So the entire exit value of the largest <laughs> company in the space Equal to all investment into the space. I mean, look, identity verification is a growing market for sure. But the question is now you have MasterCard with Akata competing with every other venture company in the space. That to me is what I would be tracking going forward in this market. And I'll add one last cherry on top before we transition. But I'm pretty sure Akata did not raise any venture capital. I believe well, it's spun, I, I, yeah. it's spun out. So it's yeah. spun out. It, it was seeded probably to some money from its parent company. So right, it's Dan? like, yeah. So so, not, so all those dollars have not been any dollars specifically for. Oh, that, oh, oh, now I see your point. <laughs> yeah, there may not right. be any VCs that made any money. <laughs> I want to say that a private equity firm helped to spin it out for what it's worth. Yeah. I, I believe there was like a, a percentage. So the, the okay. parent company probably owned 60, 70. The, the PE might have owned 40, 50. We don't know. But nonetheless, like it's not a VC backed startup from ground zero. Ha, yes. So take that. Yeah. yeah. Well, well said, Natasha. Ten points. Uh, now, what, what I, I want to point out that everyone in the VC world argues about like TAM, like how much market there is. Everything's going e-commerce. People have to verify identities, you know, whatever. That's totally true. But we don't need twenty companies doing that, you know, Danny. To your to your point. So I, I'm going to be fascinated by watching that space shake out. But let's turn a little bit, Natasha. Um, you've been covering ClearBank forever. You've been actually my favorite ClearBank reporter since the company came out. Aww. They are rebranding and they are also shaking up their model a little bit and i need you to tell me what the hell's going on so the best way to explain clearbank over the years is that it's this company that helps e-commerce raise non-dilutive financing raises the wrong word it helps them get non-dilutive financing access they did this really smart thing, I think, where they made it cool to not be like a VC before it was cool to not be like a VC. They phrased themselves as like the anti-VC, like we shouldn't be giving equity as much as possible. Like this is not the way that startups should be growing their companies. They should have ownership. So instead of giving capital in exchange for equity, we'll give you capital in exchange for a percent back over time. That's kind of the TLDR on ClearBank. 
Now we're seeing them after two years after raising their last round, we're seeing them rebrand and quadruple its valuation to $2 billion. They've raised $100 million in a Series C financing and they're rebranding to ClearCo. Quite literally, they're taking the bank out of their name because they want to be more than just a capital source for startups. They want to help them figure out which SaaS contract to buy and you know how to grow their business in more creative ways. Danny, they're trying to layer services on top of an unprofitable lending business, right? That's what's happening? <laughs> I think that, ironically, that's cynical. And I'm usually the one who's cynical. I oh, actually sorry. think this is the future of a lot of investment practices. You know, I would actually argue Tyre is entering this world. We talked about it a little bit last week. Every startup is looking for the same thing, which is easy access to capital when they need it, exactly when they need it, and nothing more than they need. And most capital providers think all the classic institutions, whether they're VC, Silicon Valley Bank, others, are always trying to push more things onto you before you want them because they want those early rates. They want to lock in, oh, you're a super early startup who hasn't figured out what you're doing. We've got to give you a high interest rate. We're going to take a lot more equity than you need. And from a founder's perspective, you want to wait. Like I want the money at literally the lowest optimal price that I can get in the lifetime of my company. And so I think ClearBank is offering that full suite of services. There was an amazing quote in Natasha's story, though, I have to read that was like, we were very naive when we started the business around the complexity, around how fast you could lose a lot of money if you don't get things right. And I have to say, like, that's like the mission statement of a fintech. Oh, we got the underwriting model off by a couple of bips. Oops, we lost a billion bucks. Keep going on that quote, though, because it gets even better. Clerico had, quote, very, very high loss rates. At the, at the start. And to be clear, like, I, I'm not even trying to be rude, but like when I heard about the 20 minute term sheet, I was like, that's a lot of conviction and not a lot of time. Totally. Uh, given, given the complexity <laughs> yeah. of, of individual businesses. So they've invested $2 billion in around 4,500 companies in just the last few years. I think their biggest challenge during that time was making sure they constantly had capital and constantly were getting better over time. Michelle Romano, the co-founder and president of Clear Co., said that they've gotten better of course. But I do think if I'm going to be a little cynical, I think the fact that they're expanding into services means that they need more data because they need to be better at it. These are a lot of altruistic free services. So over the last year, they've launched, I think, five different products. One is we'll buy your inventory up front in exchange for money back. We'll help you value your startup correctly. We'll help you access other investors. I don't know if you guys agree with this, but in my story, I kind of characterize it in the way that like AngelList wanted to be the spot for emerging fund managers. ClearBank is trying to be the spot for emerging founders. Oh, I don't, I don't work? hate that. Okay. Love that. I was worried about it. No one called me out on it. <laughs> I think ClearBank, like a lot of these companies, you know, they're, they're cleaning up. You know, AngelList was an open marketplace. It was angel to company, right? It was just trying to facilitate those transactions. I think this next generation, this V2, like a lot of marketplaces, they're productized. You go from a world of, okay, there it's eBay and it's thousands of sellers selling kind of similar goods, but you'll have to kind of vet everyone to... Well, ClearBank just gives you the money direct. You don't have to worry about all these different complexities. You know what you're getting. It's consistent. We're seeing this not just here, but also with Pipe, with CapChase. There's a bunch in the SaaS revenue-backed securities market. There's just so many different ways to slice this up. What I do get worried about as sort of a last point here, though, is ClearBank only works essentially for e-com and for SaaS. Yeah. And so it's great if you're following these two buckets. They're big buckets, and they're highly recurring. They have a lot of great data. But if you don't fit in those little buckets, you basically can't be using any of these services whatsoever. And to me, that kind of restricts a lot of the innovation we're going to see going forward in areas like hard tech, all the interesting parts of venture where, guess what, these companies won't show up. That's where venture capital should play. I literally just finished writing about a space round that we're going to talk about towards the end of the show. And they're raising a bunch of money to essentially finish their tech. And then they're going to raise a bunch more money and put a satellite in space. Great use of venture capital, no revenue, just expenses, huge vision, awesome tech ideas, super cool. 
But like in the SaaS space, I think all these companies that Danny just mentioned that are working on providing capital in different and new and exciting ways makes so much sense to me. I think VC really is fading away in that part of the world. But Danny, we need to pivot over to the world of RPA. Now, before the show, Natasha and I were riffing about what RPA really is, because we all think that robotic process automation, or RPA, is poorly named. And so we are going to turn to Professor Crichton for a lecture on why that term sucks. This is the part, if you're listening to the show, that you should take a Valium, because it'll help you get through it. Uh, Robotic process automation, a huge category in the enterprise space. All those forms, all the manual work that people do in corporations, expense reporting, TPS reports, logistics, supply chain, all the above. How do you automate that in a way that like actually works for the company? You know, for years, people said AI. The reality is, is AI can't do a lot of this. It's actually really complicated. It's very process driven. And so a bunch of companies, UiPath being among the most prominent, went into this space called robotic process automation, which was really about what can we optimize from the human user's perspective to make their life easier? So maybe it's using image recognition to read a report in, using OCR optical character recognition to sort of read the text on that form, auto-populating fields, they read it, double-check, and hit enter, so they don't have to type all that out manually. Companies do a lot here. It's a huge space. It's not just profitable on the software side. It's also extremely profitable on the services side. Companies integrating this into their workflows. That's where the magic is in a lot of this space. Denny, listening to you explain it, because you know, I've explained RPA to other people, but I've never really had it talked to me in those terms. It's, it's human process automation using robots. So like, it's not RPA. And by robots, we don't mean literally, like, I, I, this is the worst term. And I got to be honest, like, this is the dumbest ass bullshit you'll ever hear going on in the <laughs> bleep, enterprise space. Bleep, like, bleep. Robots. You have this idea of like, oh, there's like some robot. Who, who was that person, the Jetsons? This is not robots. Okay. This is, this is like literally basic Python coding, if you will. Image character recognition, optimizing, taking in from a couple of different data sources and filling it in onto one single report. It's a lot of data munging and grunt work that you're taking out of these processes. I was just going to say, I feel like the sector, I don't know if it struggles to attract venture capital, probably not. But if it had something as sweet as low code or no code as its branding, I think it would do so much better. I mean, I mean, in, in many ways, this is low code. Yes. Yeah. It's fully integrated, service-driven low code. And RPA was just the first name for it. So like UiPath is a relatively old company in this space. Again, for the same reason, it's low code before it was rebranded. Okay, so I asked the company's CEO, and I didn't, sorry, CFO yesterday, I think it's Amish Singh. I don't have his name on my notes doc, so if I butchered that, I'm very sorry. Lovely guy. And I was talking about this exact thing. I'm like, look, automation is an enormous category that I think RPA plays in part of. How does RPA sit in the company's overall strategy, you know, long term? And he was pretty certain that RPA was going to maintain centrality to some degree, but certainly broader automation, Natasha, to your point about the low-code, no-code world, is going to have an enormous part to play. Uh, let's talk about the numbers. Everyone should recall that UiPath raised a $750 million round in February of this year at a roughly $35 billion valuation. And we all were like, hot dang, that's a lot of money at a very high price. And me personally thought, sounds like a raise a bunch of capital, then direct list situation. Wrong. They went through out through a traditional IPO. They had an initial IPO range, pretty small. Then they raised it up to $52 to $54 a share, priced above that at 56 and as we talked to you today, they are worth $78.87. So a relatively steep repricing post-IPO. Nothing crazy, no Airbnb doubling on day one, but certainly a nice positive IPO pop, raised a bunch more primary capital. A lot of folks made a lot of money. I was going back through the cap table, and I know we always do this, but people were buying you know, like 13 million shares in the Series B at like $2 a share. And I'm just like, oh, that's 3540X right there. That's that's pretty good. So an enormous exit. The company per Google Finance is worth today $47.8 billion. So it had a weird pricing run, but it ended up doing very, very well. And I think this should be probably a net good for other 
RPA and automation startups? I was going to ask a very equity question, which is what it means for startups when a exit looks the way it did with this valuation being less than its private? Yeah. So what she's asking about is, you know, when UiPath first put out its IPO price range, it was looking like a $26, $28 billion valuation, which was down from the $35 billion valuation that it raised out in February, dramatically up from the $10 billion it was worth in the middle of last year. So you ended up in this weird situation in which the company had appreciated in value greatly since last summer, but it may have been mispriced in the private markets by a couple of overly enthusiastic investors. Was it really a down IPO? Was that just a, you know, a blip? I think we ended up with the share price where it is today. The company's implied valuation now being up again. It's just a big win for the business because they're now public. They raised another half billion dollars or whatever it was in capital, and they have enough money to do whatever the hell they want. But Natasha, to your point about other startups raising money off kind of the back of the UiPath success, we are going to move along though to a couple of funding rounds on the smaller side. No more mega rounds, no more trillion dollar companies. How about some startups? And we're going to kick off with Deal. Ironically, it's a unicorn, Natasha. Sorry about that. I know. I was about to say. (laughs) Tell us about Deal. It's not a trillion dollar company, but it's a billion dollar company. So Deal, D-E-E-L, has raised $156 million in Series C funding after 20x growth in 2020. And it's at a $1.25 billion valuation. Deal is in a super sweet spot, especially with remote and distributed workforces. It provides payroll compliance tools and basically helps businesses hire remotely. It's SF-based, which I think is a lovely detail considering everyone hates SF now and thinks that SF can't understand the distributed life. But I think the virtual HR software has never been hotter and Deal actually is in a complicated space. Even though it feels obvious, it's not easy to pay people in different currencies in a scalable way. And Danny, I'm sure you know a lot about that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, the part I've actually enjoyed over the last couple of months, I, I have a, a secret affection for people learning how complex government is because when they <laughs> interact with it, it's wonderful. It's like, you finally figured out that taxes are complicated. But my favorite one recently was talking to a founder who discovered all went remote first, obviously, as part of the pandemic, learned that they had employees, you know, a couple dozen employees across a couple dozen states and realized instantly how complicated it is from a tax and legal perspective as a company have employees in all these states suddenly has to start collecting sales tax. Yeah, you have a tax base in, in those states. 40 new jurisdictions. Yep. Suddenly you have nexus in all these different places. In some cases, you actually are at the county level. Some counties have sales tax increments that if you literally have an employee in that county, it triggers you to actually have to collect that sales tax when you didn't have to before. So it was one of those things where it was like so enjoyable because I'm like, sales tax is really complicated in the United States. That's why people use all these different software programs. Deal is trying to get that on the employee side, you know, withholding changes in every state. I'm in New York City. We have five or six different withholding taxes. It's actually, <laughs> I think we're the most of any in, in, in TurboTax, there's like an extra field for taxes. That's for New York City because we don't only have city tax, you have PMI tax and I think SDI tax. So there are six taxes up and down the stack. You know, every city, every state has different policies. And so Deal tries to make it easier to have employees everywhere, not just in the United States, but globally as well. And so Deal has over 1,800 business clients, which I don't know if that's impressive or not. Obviously, it has revenue growth. So it's something. Something I wanted to ask you guys was, what does it take? Has business growth. <laughs> casual. <laughs> but I, I guess my, my, my question and something that maybe we don't all have the answer to is like, how do you actually go to market here? I feel like there are so many companies in this space. I can't name all of them because I don't cover it. But how different and how much better can you be if you just don't, if you accomplish the, you know, the base minimum and help people pay people? Okay. So they had 500 customers in September of last year. Now they have 1,800. To me, that just screams a market that is desperate for help. So I think what Danny just outlined is super true. And I've actually had to deal with this as an employee who has been remote 
at various smaller companies and had to discuss this with HR and finance, it's an enormous pain in the backside. So I wonder if their go-to-market, Natasha, to your point, isn't that hard right now because so many companies are scrambling to get this right after making mistakes last year. And so you said sweet spot in the market earlier. I think that's dead on. Product market fit, the best definition that I've ever heard is when people are ripping the product out of your hands. That to me sounds like what happened to deal. You, you don't grow 20X in a year unless something tailwind behind you, that, you know, with, with gale forces. And that's not a diss, that's a compliment. I mean, talk about nailing where you should be. I will be curious to see if there's consolidation in this space over the next you know, couple of quarters. And maybe I'm oversimplifying it. I just wonder if like someone, one founder is like responsible for all of Deal's customers because this is such a warm intro type of community. I'm wondering if there's like a best playbook at this point for how startups should scale. I mean, I think we've written about startups that do that, but I'm just like, is it as simple as like one one founder was like, this is a good startup. Let's all go here. Or is Deal actually this insane product? Well, this reminds me a little bit of how when Brex was blowing up back in SF in 20, was it 18, 2018, 2019, whatever it was. I remember one, one CEO was like, we have Amex at our startup. We are not moving to Brex. And if one more of my friends tries to get me their Brex invite code, I'm going to scream. So I, I think these network <laughs> effects can be pretty intense. I don't know if that's the case here. I, I just think they have what people need. Danny, before we move on, CB Insight said that the industry for kind of virtual HR software will hit 43 billion by 2026. Now, those numbers are always kind of made up and out in the future, but at least the TAM seems to be large. Are you kind of net bullish on this type of software or does it get commoditized in your view and get baked into other stuff? You know, we always joke about org chart software on this podcast, if you yeah. are a longtime listener. It, it's hard because ultimately HR is logistics. You end up competing against Workday or, or Oracle or any of the larger providers, and you're always going to get there. Like at a certain scale, you always need currency fluctuations in different sectors. You have to publicly report this. Like everyone ends up at SAP, Oracle, and a couple other major companies for their ERP software, like no matter what. To me, like, sure, I think there's a great chance that all these companies will do super well. They obviously are building onto startups. The question is, is can they scale and compete with Workday on the entire suite of things that Workday does? Because ultimately, the challenge in this market is it's regulatory. Like, you can't yes. get it wrong. There's no gap. You can't be 99% and you're missing the last 1%. The last 1% is what sends people to prison. So you have to get it 100% <laughs> accurate, right? Right? Or find, probably more legitimately. So, you know, the network effects are good. But talking about network effects, talking about satellites and their network effects in space, we actually have a space startup for once. That was, like, not the best transition, but I'm just, I'm trying to, like, how do you go from virtual work to, like, outer space I work? had such a good transition, Danny. The way in which I had a transition. Guys, I'm doing it. All right. One second. Hold me back. All right. So my transition is the question for deal will be, can it become a rocket ship? And speaking of rocket ships, <laughs> let's talk about Albedo Space. Alex, you wrote about a space company somehow, somewhere. Tell us all about it. Wow. Just as we made space for deal. Now we're going to talk about a deal for space. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, albedo.space. Oh, Danny, do you want to take one more crack at this apple? <laughs> Can I, can I take one more? Yeah, please, why not? <laughs> we talked about all the complications of remote work, you know, both domestically, internationally, but no one is thinking about remote work from space. And I think that is something that we need to talk about more because we have a new startup, Albedo, which just raised a bunch of money. Alex wrote up a story literally five minutes ago. I just saw across the wires we're recording. Tell us more about that. I, I literally frantically finished that story before we hit record, handed it off to Annie on our team. I was like, please, un this and then push it out for me. And then she did. So she's amazing. So shout out Annie Siebert on the TC edit team. Albedo.space. If you recall, dear listeners and friends, our YC episode, we talked about a couple of faves from the most recent batch. And one of mine was Albedo because 
I thought what they were building is very, very cool. What they want to do is put up a constellation of eight and then later on 24 satellites, the size of a refrigerator, give or take, in low Earth orbit, powered with electric propulsion that can refuel in space, that come down to a low Earth orbit and take high resolution images of the Earth. And this is hard. You know, this is why I love venture capital in general, because you can fund things that are not going to show return for a long time. And what they've just done is close a $10 million seed round. And what this will do, this amount of money, will get them uh, basically their satellite design done. They'll get rocket time reserved. They're staffing up from three to 12 people. And then after this, they'll raise a large A, put their first rocket up in 2024. And then if that goes well, they'll raise even more money and they get their constellation up by 2027. So it's super cool. And I got to nerd out with the CEO, Topher Haddad, about electric propulsion and kind of the new space economy. And here's, here's why I wanted to bring it up. The gist is basic infrastructure for space tech is now pretty good because SpaceX has brought launch costs down. And I didn't know this, but both AWS from Amazon and Azure from Microsoft have services that are called like ground station tech. And so they will help you talk to satellites. So they've already done the work so you don't have to build that out. It's called like um, Amazon, AWS ground station, Azure orbital or something like that. And so there's a lot of these pieces in place with more modular satellite design, blah, 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 blah. And I think we may be on the cusp of a really kick-ass startup boom in space. And I just can't tell you as a nerd for sci-fi how excited that makes me. I feel like the AWS for space is so cool. And I think we talked about it a little bit on our space episode, actually, with Daryl. But I was going to say, I think Albedo Space is one of the few seed startups that raise a 10 million round that actually will probably use every penny in a way that makes sense. This company, if it's successful, should be raising hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. in order to be successful. And it's so cool that we're covering them at Seed. Well, I'm sure the Clear Bank will fund it with its 20-minute term sheet with a $100 million line. Because it's exactly yeah. these sorts of startups that like are, are easy to the underwrite. Moon shots. The moonshots. Yes, shot. exactly. A literal, literal moonshot. <laughs> Do you guys ever feel bad halfway through the show and you realize you were probably too mean to the, the startup earlier on? We were probably too mean to Clear Bank. <laughs> Probably. We love ClearBank. They know. They know that. We cover them. And Natasha, loves Clear, Natasha loves ClearBank. I'm neutral, but I think I came across as, as mean. But look, let's throw in one more quick round here before we wrap up. Another YC company, another one of our faves. Natasha, a company that you actually introduced me to, Queenly. They have put together a $2.262 million round after raising an $800,000 seed. That dollar amount is so specific because I was talking to Trisha Bantigue, the co-founder and CEO, and it had been a $2.1 million round. But a couple more wires had come in, so she updated me to the full exact dollar amount. So shout out for like, you know, knowing how much money it actually was. But Natasha, tell the people why the startup is so cool. It runs a marketplace that allows people to resell dresses and buy dresses. I think the coolest part about Queenly is they're operating in the formal wear business during a pandemic, which is not easy. Their strategy for growing is going to mom and pop boutique shops for prom dresses, for wedding dresses, and being like, listen, trust us. We were in this business. We'll help you bring your inventory online. To me, like that's the cooler play than even what actually happens is that they've gotten these businesses to trust them consistently over time and are building a business around that. It's really, really cool. And so there's two ways they handle the trust and verification side of this, because if there's anything we've learned from a recent kind of deep dive into StockX is that where there's a marketplace, there will be fraud. And so what they do is if you sell a dress on Queenly for less than $300, you have to submit photos and give a detailed description, but it's slightly lower level of required trust for that kind of smaller dollar transaction. More than that, the dress actually goes to Queenly and then they kind of vet and verify and so forth before it goes out to the customers. And so the, their goal is to have a very limited 
fraud and returns category between quinceañeras and proms and pageants and a lot of other regular events that happen, the dress market's enormous. And so building kind of StockX for formal wear is actually a pretty darn good idea. They raised 2.3 million. And that was from Dragon Capital, Brightland Ventures, Amino Capital, NextView Ventures, Interlace Ventures, Shakti Capital, and others. It is essentially a never-ending list of investors. And finally, it was just the still the two co-founders. So they get some sleep and uh, we're stoked about Queenly. I want to give two points because we always make fun of YC startups for raising crazy rounds at crazy valuations. Queenly did a really interesting thing and they turned down a $1.5 million check after closing 1.1 million of the round, showing that they were trying to focus on sustainability, snaps to them. Oh yeah, and by the way, like we, we often talk about kind of people that we, that we like in the tech world. I think Trisha, the, the CEO, is, is one of the cooler founders I've met in the last you know, couple of years. So one to watch everyone, but let's not be too nice. Let's shut up before we get in trouble. I'm Alex, Danny, Natasha, a real treat as always. We're back Monday morning. Have a lovely weekend. Goodbye. 